everybody, welcome to episode number two of Bill K's Cockeyed Caravan, my podcast coming to you live from Movie Studio Apartment. Uh, it's a movie studio apartment because it's a movie studio in a studio apartment, the ultimate efficiency in Hollywood proactive behavior here. I uh, was fortunate enough to make a movie uh, out of this apartment, uh, The Solar Opposite. Catch it sometime. If you can, uh, welcome. Uh, I'm here again uh, trying to explore the nether reaches of my mind and hoping I could shed a little light inside of yours. It's sep- no, it's not September. It's June 28th. Uh, Approaching July 4th, and even though we're only a few days removed from the summer solstice and things are sunny and bright, it seems like we've stumbled into the darkest of times, at least politically so. Um, For anybody who's watching the news, who's uh, cosmopolitan-minded, who's multicultural, who cares about... uh, All things creative and the forever expanding umbrella of social justice, uh, all those things seem to be under uh, assault uh, as I speak here alone in my little cubicle. Uh, If you're not aware, uh, a new vacancy has become available on the Supreme Court and another opportunity for the PVP, that being Putin's vice president, who's happily ensconced on Pennsylvania Avenue. Another opportunity exists for him to put his vicious stamp on the American future. And uh, clearly, the battle lines are going to be drawn. And as uh, the fall approaches over the course of this summer, um, the temperature in the political contest will be at an all-time high, uh, to be sure. Um, What's in the balance? Well, firstly and foremostly, this is the once-in-a-generation opportunity for those in the religious right to finally, after years of trying, scraping away at the edifice of women's right to choose, it'll be their big, fat chance to take a big whack at Roe v. Wade. And maybe this is where the tide, the red tide, finally peaks and will yield to a more uh, sane political future. Uh, My guess or my hope is that there will be a massive overreach uh, by the um, Trump-topian forces here, and they will pay the price, uh, if not in the Supreme Court, for sure at the ballot box, I'm hoping at least. The only remedy, in my view, is to vote. And if you want to protect free speech, um, speak freely. That's what I'm trying to do here, uh, without much preparation, I might add. So it's kind of a dark day. You know, in my whole life, you know, I was born in 1956. Uh, You know, I'm not hiding anything. I'm 62. I'm as old as I've ever been at this moment. And alternatively, I'm as young as I'll ever be. But over the span of my lifetime, uh, beginning just before my lifetime, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that uh, basically outlawed um, segregation, uh, Jim Crow, it put the legal kind of nail in that coffin. But, of course, it didn't come – there were no real results as a result of uh, that uh, decision until people uh, challenged it on the streets, in the lunch counters – 
in the buses, uh, in housing, until people really uh, took direct action uh, to demand that the federal government enforce this decision, did those walls come uh, in some, you know, tumbling down to some degree. But my, my larger point is, since then, you know, with the, some recent exceptions, we've seen this expanding umbrella of social justice sort of spread out over the American uh, landscape. First, of course, it was, you know, uh, voting rights and uh, the, you know, fair housing and the Civil Rights Act and uh, equal access to public accommodations, all these things that were denied for so many uh, generations, actually. Those things began to crumble. And later we saw the same effect, with, you know, for women and LGBTQ and Miranda rights. And we saw this, basically the Supreme Court seemed to be uh, a place where, at least in the law, rights were expanded and uh, the opportunity to seek social justice, you know, was redeemed positively by Supreme Court decisions. But that seems to have reached its apex, I guess, in the last few years. I think starting most dramatically in 2001 with uh, Gore, you know, versus Bush, uh, the Supreme Court intervened and um, ensured, I think, you know, and then we had uh, Citizens United, which guaranteed corporations uh, the full rights of citizenship and uh, the First Amendment rights as if they could conf- could be conferred on an organization as well as uh, a person. And most recently, uh, we've seen the Bush, uh, rather Trump's, the PVP's immigration uh, uh Position affirmed by a conservative Supreme Court. We've seen labor uh, laws now, um, the rights of or to to organize. Uh, the labor movement has taken a beating on the head from the Supreme Court, specifically in the public sector. And now a new seat has become vacant. And to be sure, reproductive rights will be on the table. And... It seems like we're just going full speed backwards when it comes to um, things that had, you know, been contested in the past. And I think that just goes to show that progress is not an irreversible thing. It can suffer setbacks and trauma, and we're in the midst of that now. And for someone who's a comedian like myself, or a wannabe comedian, or, well, I think the alternative name for this podcast could be Rebel Without Applause because I've not been on stage much recently. So this microphone is uh, my own outlet right now, absent an audience. Uh, Hopefully that'll change sometime sooner than later. But in the meantime, here I am uh, babbling away. And if there's one truth that has occurred to me is that my need uh, to express to to speak uh is far outweighs anybody's desire to hear me so here i am alone speaking fulfilling my desire at nobody's expense unless somehow you turn into this um this the cockeye caravan why the cockeye caravan i said it in the first episode i'll say it again in this the cockeye caravan is the last line of one of my favorite movies sullivan's travels preston Sturge's classic comedy and um Cockeye Caravan. I just like that name, and it alliterates with Bill Kay, 
Bill Kalmanson, Bill Kay's Cockeyed Caravan. So welcome uh, once again. And uh, what are the big questions that are out there uh, that I'm ruminating over? I, I think the first one that well outweighs any uh, political considerations, uh, the trauma of Trumptopia, the big question that is just looming over all of us is where will LeBron James be this fall? Now, as a dedicated Angelino, I'm hearing, you know, every day that in all likelihood it will come to the Lakers. My feeling about it is, well, my feelings about it are mixed. Why? I've always rooted against the guy. He's been an overdog. He doesn't seem like a Laker. Um, seems like the great Lakers successes of the past seem to emerge uh, from Lakers. Uh, players that you know seem to come out of the Laker culture or had some big connection to Los Angeles, even though Kareem was a trade. You know he was had made his name here at UCLA, and I just don't feel that way about LeBron. Um, I don't know. You know, will that feel like a Laker win if he's imported and gets to wear that uniform? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't dispute or debate his talent. And I will say this, over the last few years, I've come to respect and even appreciate him more. Um, at first, he bugged me. He, he was, he, I felt like despite his talent and ability, he was spoiled. He didn't really know how to lose. He was ungracious uh, at those moments in his career. But over time, you know, you've seen the growth, or I've seen the growth. And he's learned how to lose and in those years has also become a champion. So there's no denying his stature as an athlete and even as a person. And on balance, yes, the Lakers would be uh, massively improved were he to be, uh, you know, were he to come here. Uh, but we'll see. I don't know. There's something about it. Even if he does come here, are they going to be better than the Warriors? I don't know. Um, so that that's my... My hot sports take here uh, from the biased perch of a, a fan. Um, my people aren't giving me any, insight, me any inside information other than what I hear on the radio. So, um, but that is the big question. I think it looms over us uh, every second. And, and once we dispose uh, of that, I think we'll be able to concentrate more on the uh, Supreme Court and other things in my life what's going on i'm still rocked i'm unsettled i'm bothered and about the mystery that is anthony bourdain it just hasn't left you know the forefront of my consciousness how somebody i mean from my point of view the guy was living the most adventurous, exciting, creative life, you know, he, he was, he was living the life that, you know, I, I can only kind of grab in bits and pieces when I enjoy my own travels. This year I was fortunate enough to go to Palau and scuba dive and I've been to Vietnam and sampled the cuisine and walked the streets and questioned people and sort of made my amends as an American to the, uh, catastrophe precipitated by us on the Vietnamese people. And, um, you know, these are things that he does almost, well, on a weekly, seemingly on a weekly basis, at least that's as I catch it on CNN. And yet, 
the guy offed himself. And, in, and, and since then, I've read his book. I read Kitchen Confidential. I'm in, I'm in the middle of another one. And the guy was just so talented and, and so full of life. And, and even, and I think it was in the last chapter or two of Kitchen Confidential, he, he's talking about how some of his peers who were also in the grip of heroin, you know, some decades past in all likelihood would not survive, but that he would and that nothing would take him down. And it was so affirmative. And yet, uh, at one a moment came in his life where um, he chose another path. And this, you know, and this is bugging me because there's people, unnamed people in my own personal life who I will protect, who are also entertaining this um this irreversible option. And it made me wonder if indeed suicide is contagious. I hope not. Because if so, uh, we might be on the brink of a major outbreak. Um, so I'm still dealing with the Anthony Bourdain thing. I guess not so much as a question of grief because it's it's not my loss. He's not someone I knew individually or personally. I'm not suffering from that. But I'm really saddened by it, and and the mystery of it is is overwhelming. And I'm I'm reading him, and I recommend reading him uh, because he's a good writer, and he takes you to different places and times in a state of being that's I don't know. It's very honest, and every time I cook a meal now, I'm taking greater pains to clean the surfaces and. All those things that, you know, important chefs do. So I'm still thinking about Tony. I can call him Tony now because I've read one and a half of his books. And that leaves me entitled. Um, Elsewhere in the big life of BK, uh, I, um, well, those of you that know me will know this. I... Uh, acquired and adapted David Halberstam's book, um, The Children, and adapted into a screenplay. And it's been my life's mission over the last five years to somehow bring my uh, this to the screen. Hopefully as a movie, perhaps as a television series. We're, we're in a totally new world order of media delivery um, with the Netflix and um, subscription-based video on demand, watch when you want to watch TV series. It just renders the world that, you know, I grew up in, the world of networks, and even HBO, quaint, distant, and um, old-fashioned. So I don't know if, when, or how this project of mine, for which I paid a lot of money, will find its uh, place in the public consciousness. Uh, For those of you that don't know about David Halberstam, he was in, um, I consider him one of the iconic uh, American chroniclers of the the American 20th century. He wrote um, brilliantly about Vietnam. You might recall um, his, well, his breakthrough book, which really um, made him famous, was The Best and the Brightest. And then you know, he was prolific, 40 or more books, often on the bestseller list. Uh, he wrote about uh, journalism, politics, uh, war, peace, a great book called The 50s, which really was a really interesting um, 
inquiry into the meaning of that decade and who were the sort of important figures in it and why it was transformative. And um, he wrote about sports, the Red Sox, Olympic rowers, uh, basketball. He, he was all over the map, uh, but a great writer and a master of the profile. And amongst his books, the one that caught my attention, sort of accidentally, I might say, was The Children. And uh, as a sidelight, Halberstam was a young reporter in Nashville in 1960. And uh, as fate would have it, he had a front row seat to what was the emerging um, civil rights movement that really uh, started there. And he wrote, he, he had an opportunity to observe it and write about it for the Nashville, Tennessee. And years, actually decades later, uh, he returned to that subject and wrote The Children, which was his up-close and personal account of these handful of young African-American students, not really children, we would call them young adults, uh, undergraduates, who got trained in the disciplines and strategies of Mahatma Gandhi, who had um, revolutionized India. And he used the young people who got taught these tools, applied them uh, as as a way to dismantle Uh, the problem that faced them every day in the American South, and that was segregation. They did it first, of course, at the lunch counters, and then later on the buses. Uh, They were known as the Freedom Riders. Uh, Before they ended up in the spring and early summer of 1961, in that most cruel uh, of American prisons, Parchman Penitentiary in Mississippi, which... uh, was basically a slave plantation disguised as a work work farm and had a you know made to look like a state penitentiary and so these young most modern and most forward looking of young people found themselves in a place that was more reminiscent of uh, pre civil war slavery than mid century um, America in the twentieth century. Um, the most famous person in the story, I mean, who's you know known to us today, is, is John Lewis. He was um, absorbed more beatings and took more punishment than any of these young people, uh, all in the service of his ideal, which was of this beloved community. And he and the other three were led by this most le- least likely, rather, of leaders. Um, Diane Nash, she was from Chicago, she was quite beautiful, she was fair-skinned, debutante-like in her demeanor, a beauty contest winner, and she arrived at Fisk uh, University in Nashville, and against, you know, her own first impression became the steely-eyed leader of these young people, and without... Diane and the sit-in kids, which indeed included John Lewis and James Bevel, and who was her love interest and is at the core of you know this story dramatically is their relationship, and also uh, Bernard Lafayette. And the story focuses on these four young people, and they're mentored by um, this divinity student who was at uh, Vanderbilt at the time, had recently returned from India, and he uh, mentors or tutors them in these uh, Gandhian techniques. So these are like the core four players and Lawson, and it's their journey across um, 
1960 and 1961. At least that's the scope of my script. The, the, the scope of the book is much wider. It's, uh, so what I created is, is a, um, was really a massive act of reduction. And sometimes you have to do that to find the truth. And that's what I did. I wrote the screenplay and then rewrote it a million times. Uh, the children, and I've been out and about trying to put it together. Uh, sadly, today or yesterday now, I was in negotiation with Sony TriStar, and they had made a very meager and unenthusiastic uh, offer to me uh, to do this as a, a limited series. And I, I was excited about that prospect, uh, but they never wanted to talk to me about it. Uh, sadly, uh, one of the, the lead executive in the, in the whole endeavor uh, died uh, in the midst of our conversations, and they really never picked up the ball. And when we made a counteroffer, it was summarily and quickly refused and the offer withdrawn. So I am back now where I was a few months ago, uh, looking, turning over every stone. No stone unturned, no turn unstoned. And that's life in Hollywood, at least for me. Um, and you folks have been terrific here and this will be, I think we'll just wrap this up. That's what's going on in my life. Uh, there's always the political dimension, uh, dealing with the scourge of the PVP, trying to stay happy in troubling times, keep our sanity, our hopefulness, um, stay happy, whatever that is. And however you can do it. And then we talked about LeBron and the Supreme Court and the Lakers and my adventures or misadventures in Hollywood. And once again, thank you as I joining me on my cockeyed caravan here live from Movie Studio Apartment. Over and out. <laughs>